This episode of TV's Top 5 is brought to you by the Stars limited series, Mary and George. Julianne Moore and Nicholas Galitzine star in the scandalous true story of Mary Valliere, who molded her beautiful and charismatic son to seduce King James I. Quite the moment in history. See why the Hollywood Reporter calls it a delicious drama. Mary and George, for your Emmy consideration for outstanding limited series and all eligible categories. Mary and George is now streaming on the Stars app. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. This week's podcast is brought to you by the final season of Schitt's Creek, recipient of 15 Emmy nominations, including Outstanding Comedy Series, Outstanding Writing for a Comedy Series, plus acting nominations for Catherine O'Hara, Eugene Levy, and Dan Levy, and Annie Murphy. Schitt's Creek on Pop TV and CBC, for your consideration. Welcome back to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined by my friend, co-host, and THR's chief TV critic, Dan Feinberg. Dan, how's your week? It's hot, Leslie. Damn hot. Yeah, it's it's like an oven outside. It's brutal, but it's a good reason to continue to stay home. Yes, because that was what we really needed, a reason. Right, exactly. Well, let's just dive right into it this week, shall we? Leading off our in-headlines, Comedy Central continues to clean house amid its new strategy and has reversed course on a seventh season of its Emmy-nominated series, Drunk History. Instead, the recently concluded sixth season will now serve as its last. Over on Amazon, Rachel Weisz will star in a TV reboot of David Cronenberg's Dead Ringers. Consider me interested. Over at Apple, the streamer has handed out a speedy season two renewal for Jason Sudeikis' comedy Ted Lasso, which, as Bill Lawrence told us in our August 7th episode, will not write the pandemic into the show. Showtime has picked up six episodes of Moonbase 8, a comedy that was produced before the pandemic, starring Fred Armisen, John C. Riley, and Tim Heidecker. I've already heard, seen it described on Twitter as a comedy version of Space Force. Yikes. Uh, over at ABC, Ryan Seacrest, Luke Bryan, Katy Perry, and Lionel Richie have all closed deals to return for the fourth season of American Idol. In development news, a clueless update focusing on Stacey. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Let's I keep couldn't... it in. Keep this in. <laughs> In development news, a clueless update focusing on Stacey Dash's Dion character is in the works at Peacock, presumably with Stacey Dash not being allowed anywhere near it. Over at UCP, Seth MacFarlane has set his second project for the studio, a limited series about the Little Rock Nine. A network is not yet attached. In other development news, TikTok breakout Sarah Cooper's hot streak continues as CBS, in a competitive situation, has signed on to adapt her 2018 book, How to Be Successful Without Hurting Men's Feelings, as a comedy series. The deal, which is again in development, comes just eight days after she scored a Netflix comedy special. Vita creator Tanya Siracho has signed an overall deal with UCP and will also establish an incubator program designed to amplify intersectional Latinx voices. 
And in the latest round of executive changes, Ron Meyer has exited NBC Universal and Len Amato, the longtime head of HBO Films, who most recently added oversight of Cinemax and miniseries, has departed the premium cable network after a 13 year run. While the Ron Meyer story is not necessarily the kind of thing we would discuss on TV's Top 5, we strongly recommend you reading coverage of it because it's a heck of a story. Oh, my God. And (laughs) please, no one option that because then Charlotte Kirk gets paid. Well, with all that out of the way, let's dive into this week's Top 5. Number one. Leading off this week. As we sit and record this, we are through three of the four nights of the Democratic National Convention. Dan, you have been watching and kind of reviewing some of the coverage here so far. What are some of your big takeaways from the what feels like a virtual telethon like convention? It is very odd. Yes, I wrote about the first two nights and our colleague Ingu Kang uh, has written about last night and next night or the second two nights. Let's say that. And I watched the third night and I will certainly watch the fourth night and looking forward to next week's Republican convention. Uh, It is said no one ever. uh, Scott Baios, I'm sure, has said it several times. Uh, Dean Cain, Kid Rock, uh, Ted Nugent. Come on. That's a that's a rogues gallery, an all star list. Uh, I stand corrected. Damn straight. Um, Yes. Anyway, it's been interesting because this is an event that is defined by the group atmosphere. It is defined by a convention hall floor full of rowdy people in silly hats, chanting, yelling at each other, bumping into each other. It's all about the esprit de corps. It's all about the group feeling. And this is very much not. And so it has been very interesting to watch and you don't always say that about a convention, uh, and we'll see if the Republicans are interesting to watch next week. I assume they will be on an intellectual level, if nothing else. Um, it, it's been interesting to see how you handle a convention where you can't have more than basically two or three people in a room at any given time. Uh, apparently, at this point, now Joe Biden and Jill Biden and Kamala Harris and her husband are basically quarantine pod buddies so they can be hanging out in the room at the same time, which is reassuring. It's been interesting to see some of the innovations that are actually really, really good. For example, on the second night, the roll call, which is always one of the funny, silly, traditional, archaic pieces of the process, which dates back to when there were actually brokered conventions and conventions could go 5, 10, 15 ballots and it was a big contentious thing. People would fight all of that. It's normally one of those things that you kind of either watch and giggle at. You know, one person after another gets up and goes, uh, Texas, home of the Texas Rangers and Whataburger is proud to give its 55 delegates to the next president of the United States. Anyway, you know the thing. This was a really interesting around the horn process of the entire country of 57 states and territories. And they all got to choose how they presented their state, how they got presented their votes, who did the nominating process. And it was kind of impressive. It was kind of emotional. People chose what monuments they wanted to stand in front of. They chose who the recipient, the per- who the person was who was going to announce the votes. They chose what they wanted to accentuate about their states. So you had Rhode Island with a guy standing next to a chef with a gigantic pile of fried calamari and wanted to promote that the fried calamari is the official appetizer of the state of Rhode Island. And 
That was fantastic, actually. I, I genuinely liked that, and I would love to believe that in the future it will be something that we will do again because it was honestly the best way to do a roll call of our country from sea to shining sea. Uh, lots of other things haven't been as effective. Uh, Kamala Harris's address in night three I thought was a very wonderful, passionate speech, but the fact that she was doing it in front of an empty room and yet she was still looking around the room as if there were people there. It it didn't work as well. I'm not saying it took all that much away from the speech, but it was a it was a thing that reminded you, OK, this is a distinctly not normal thing that we're still doing uh, there. You know, there have been things like that. There have been very minor technical gaffes. I mean, let's be honest, the technical gaffes have been virtually nil. Everyone picks on them on Twitter and goes, ha ha ha. Jim Clyburn had to restart his statements. Who cares? Come on, get over it. That's ridiculous. Don't be stupid. On the other hand, they exist uh, and they'll exist for the Republicans, too. It, it's just where we are. It's the technology. It's the life. Anyway, so it has been an interesting technological process. I assume you found a way to avoid the entire thing, right, Leslie? I watched Obama's speech last night on uh, on The New York Times, and that was uh, I watched a little of the roll call. But yeah, for the most part, I've I've been kind of just trying to avoid politics. Entirely reasonable and a choice, and heaven knows everything has been extraordinarily weighty. You know, there have been long segments dedicated to first responders, long segments dedicated to Black Lives Matter, long segments dedicated to there was there was a full in memoriam for the hundred and seventy thousand ish people who have died as of now from coronavirus. So uh, it's it's been hard to forget all of the things that are bringing a lot of people down. And if what you happen to be is not wanting to get brought down, I understand why you wouldn't be watching. And the ratings have, of course, been down as well, though with so many asterisks that it seems not worth saying unless you're a Republican wanting to gloat. And certainly there have been plenty of people tweeting, ha ha ha, 25 million people watched four years ago and 18 million people watch now. Well, OK, but given that those numbers don't represent streaming and give. Yeah, the, the industry <laughs> hasn't changed at all in the last four years. So. Yeah, exactly. So and, and, and trust that once again, and I said this in my first thing, if, if you are a conservative making fun of the production values of the Democratic convention, don't do that. Yours won't be better. And if you're a conservative making fun of the ratings, don't do that. Yours won't be better. This is simply the reality of the situation. Things have changed. Ratings are going to be down. That's what life is. A lot of people still have been watching. And how much of that is based on the looky-loo factor of trying to see what this is actually going to look like? I, I can't say. But the, the first night, definitely it felt as if there were bumpinesses and, and structural things that they hadn't thought out. I thought the third night, though, in contrast, was pretty much a, a freight train. Everything moved right ahead. You know, speech, 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 speech. Big moment, big moment. Hey, Kerry Washington. You know, that that sort of thing. So... It has been different. That is that is yeah. the way I would describe it. <laughs> and how are you feeling after watching all of this stuff? I mean, for me, like when I say that I try to avoid politics, I mean, I'm reading about it when it's healthy for me to do so because I try to limit how much my intake is after like, say, 6 p.m. Just because <laughs> it I can't I can't I'm not OK, you know, so. I mean, the, the, so how are you feeling after watching so much of this stuff? It, it all weighs on you and it all weighs on you on any number of levels. Like even like let's let's completely leave the partisan aspect out of it. 
because I'm sure we have listeners who are conservatives and Republicans, and I'm not going to go into that here. It, it It is a reminder of how the last six months in particular have changed the way that we look in the world at the world. And, you know, it's, it's impossible to extricate that from everything else. And so no matter what your partisan emotions are, the last six months have been trying for everybody. And so there's that. But on the other hand, when things work, I found the roll call segment utterly inspiring. I, I really did. Seeing seeing the people from various different indigenous tribes uh, speaking in indigenous Native American languages. That was that was wonderful. That that was America to me. Seeing the people in the northern Mariana Islands, um, seeing how everyone was representing themselves. That to me was inspiring on whatever level I have patriotic instincts. And I am not a rah-rah patriotic person one way or the other. I have my politics. They are what they are. But that to me was totally a here is America. And if you watched that and didn't think that was America and not entirely positive, there were people pointing out injustices and systematic oppressions during that roll call but it felt like America. And that to me was inspiring. And, you know, everything else, sometimes inspiring, sometimes disheartening, sometimes boring as heck. Um, but a little, little bit of everything. Yeah. And I also find it kind of interesting that I'll, that some networks have avoided doing bumper to bumper coverage of the DNC because they don't want to be forced to give equal time to the RNC, Dan. And also just the general structure of the thing hasn't been as packed as as it has been in, in other years. There have definitely been years where you would have from eight o'clock to eleven o'clock, three hours of convention coverage. This has already been reduced for the networks who care down to two hours. It's a it's a nine to eleven thing. And then the broadcast networks and Fox News have decided it's only worth one hour. And so that's meant that anyone speaking in the nine o'clock hour has just been left out in the broadcast airing and in the Fox News airing. So, yeah, like one could argue that probably smart money would have found a way to make sure everything was condensed, I don't know, into an hour apiece. But this is still an important part of the process. And so they've been trying to get in the things you need to get in, both to inspire the base and maybe to inspire anyone else who's out there watching. But, you know, every once in a while you hear someone mention an undecided voter, and that feels to me like a, a baffling phenomenon at this particular moment. But <laughs> yeah. but, it, but it is what it is, as we say over and over again during this particular convention. Um, yeah, well, it's there have been interesting things, and I'm sure that the roll call is out there somewhere on the Internet, and it, it really is worth checking out. It's it's a kind of special thing, and and I would never under any other circumstance say that the roll call at a convention was a special thing. So there you go. There you go. Up next, there's some big changes going on at the Ellen DeGeneres show. Number two. This week, The Ellen DeGeneres Show fired three senior executive producers following an investigation by corporate parent Warner Media amid reports that they fostered a toxic workplace. Ed Glavin, Kevin Lehman, and Jonathan Norman, who had all been with the syndicated daytime talk show since day one, were all ousted. 
Ellen, meanwhile, apologized to staffers in a tearful video conference call and vowed to improve the show's production process and participate in diversity and inclusion workshops. Meanwhile, Warner Brothers investigators found no evidence of systemic racism. Dan, this is a big story. Let's start with Ellen's brand. How much do you think this has damaged her, like Ellen, the nice, the nice lady brand? The queen of niceness, the queen of happy. It's an interesting question, and it gets to the root of how much the core Ellen audience is out there reading trade reports on what's happening behind the scenes on the Ellen DeGeneres show, because I think that a lot of people who actually exist in the industry knew bits and pieces of this already. You know, what we knew specifically is a different question, but the question of whether Ellen was actually this oasis of kindness in a cold, heartless industry. I don't think anyone who actually exists in the Hollywood bubble thought that for a single second. But the people who are out there who believed it and who watched the show every day and all of that, I, I don't know that it honestly matters that much to them. I, I think the handling of it has been borderline bizarre. You know, on one hand, Ellen goes, well, it's my name on the show, so the buck stops with me and then fires three people. But it's not like she can fire herself. So what are you going to do? That just means the buck actually doesn't stop with Ellen. It means it stops a few people before Ellen. And if that's what it is, that's what it is. Uh, I, you know, there was the unsightly thing a couple weeks ago of celebrities coming out and saying, well, when I was on the show, everyone was nice to me. That was it, that was repulsive. And sure, honest. sure. Kevin Hart. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I want to hear more from Kevin Hart. I mean, if you listen to the show, you know my feelings about about all of that following. Well, fo following it, we all know what it was following. But it's just, you know, look, I, as a member of the LGBTQ community, like she was our poster child. You know, I remember her coming out episode. It was one of the most important episodes of television in my lifetime and in a lot of people's lifetime. And it did a lot for visibility. Right. It goes back to the Harvey Milk quote. Right. You know, if you if if they know us, they can't discriminate against us. Right. And so seeing gay characters on TV was huge. But but since then, and we obviously know what the, the toll that it took on her career and her personally, she lost sponsors. The show was canceled shortly thereafterwards. I mean, it was a big deal. And she underwent a lot of hardship during all that. But since then, I mean, she's got brands. She had, she's had spinoffs from all these, from her daytime show, all these like Ellen's game of games, you know, like she has built a media empire. And now it's just, you know, the last thing that I want to hear from is other celebrities like, well, of course you do. You're, you're you know, you're a celebrity. People are, you're the guest. People are going to be nice to you. It's like, you know, when as press, you know, very early in my career, I was like, oh, well, I never thought that that person was, was a bad person because they were always nice to me. And as my great editor, Lacey Rose, once told me, your press, they have to be nice to you. It bodes well for them to be nice to you. And of course, you know, well, when Ashton Kutcher, I mean, Ashton Kutcher said nice things about her too, right? I'm not making that up, right, Dan? That is, that yeah. is an accurate but thing like, that happened. <laughs> when Ashton Kutcher said, oh, it was, I had a great experience. Of course you did. Like, also just Kevin Hart, stop talking. And I'm, <laughs> I continue to be flabbergasted that Ellen and Kevin Hart remain a thing. And it's just... It, it, it hurts my soul. It's just so strange because none of the accusations against the show and none of the bad press was about how Ellen treated 
her powerful celebrity friends. So great. Go ahead. She treated you nice when you were in your green room with your uh, with your M&Ms with the green M&Ms removed. Muzzle tough. What do you think? What what do you think you're saying? No. Did the the, staff look happy? Did you hear people yelling? Did did you sense uh, get a sense that it was not a healthy space to, to work? It comes it comes down to a lot of these celebrities when they go on these shows. How much do you think they really look around at what the staff are thinking and feeling regardless? I would think the answer is virtually not at all. And that is that is the way that they live their lives. And that's fine. But don't pretend in this particular case that your opinion is actually relevant because you're bringing in a piece of information that had nothing to do with what the conversation was previously. Nobody doubted that Ellen DeGeneres was nice to celebrities. Just let that be a thing that we accept, whether she's nice to other people and whether her producers are nice to other people is the thing that's a question. And I have no firsthand knowledge one way or the other. And yeah, so so where are we in this story now? What is what is still to to happen? Because obviously the show's not being canceled. Obviously, she's not being replaced. Where are we? You know, I mean, they're about to resume production. Um, I believe it's remote. And, you know, they have to fix the culture. That's, you know, and that's up to them. That And it's going to start with Ellen, who continues to sit there and say that it starts and stops with her. And, you know, the bigger question is how much she knew, as you pointed out, Dan. She's going to have to make sure that the culture is, is fixed and she's going to have to look out for her staff and be more hands on. You know, and in terms of where we are in the life cycle of the show, the show got renewed in May 2019. Ellen's current contract expires in 2022. The renewal at the time came as a bit of a surprise because, as Ellen said in a big New York Times feature in December 2018, which, by the way, had the headline, Ellen DeGeneres is not as nice as you think. <laughs> at the time, she said she was considering ending her show and focusing you know, and kind of just vanishing into the, you know, uh, into the background and, and doing the stand-up, sh- stand-up show every now and again. But, yeah, it's, it's interesting to see, A, if she can fix the culture there, B, if there's any kind of admission of what has happened here on air and see if the show goes on or be you know like if she's going to get try and ask ask out of her contract she's a huge talent for warner brothers that show remains one of the very very few syndicated talk shows that are reliably that that perform well that continue to exist that that the syndication space has seen a ton of turnover so yeah i mean she's also expensive so you know, with Warner Media, you know, cutting layoffs, doing a bunch of layoffs and consolidating things. If she's unhappy and she wants out, it, it yeah, it l- will leave a big financial hole for the studio. But also, you know, you got to follow her lead at this point because she's the one who says if she if, if the show goes on. So I don't think Warner Brothers is ever going to cancel her, no matter how much she, she knew or didn't know. Right. It's like ABC is not going to cancel Grey's Anatomy. It's going to be Ellen Pompeo who says I'm done just like it was Jim Parsons who said, I'm done on Big Bang. So stay tuned, as we say. Yes, stay tuned. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Number three. Up third, let's talk about Netflix, Dan. 
Efforts to break through in the talk show genre continue to fizzle at Netflix. This week, the streamer canceled Patriot Act with Hassan Minaj after a two-year and 39-episode run. It was the latest talk show to get the axe at Netflix, Dan, and it was a bit of a, of a surprise considering this was a show that reliably seemed to cut through. Yeah, th this is a mistake, and this is a mistake that goes above and beyond, and we'll talk in a bit about the other problems that Netflix has had in this particular space. And I've been a fan of basically one of the shows in this space before this one. Uh, I I liked the Michelle Wolf show. I understand why some people didn't, whatever. But that wasn't one where I felt like removing that voice from the landscape was actually a, a serious mistake. And this is one where I would like to believe that whatever power Netflix had to support a show that wasn't maybe doing all that well in the ratings, not that we would ever know, this was one that deserved that support because uh, Hassan Minhaj was doing very good work on this show. And he was doing good work addressing difficult topics in a smart way. I don't know if it was quite on the the John Oliver level, but it wasn't that far off. It, it was in the vicinity. They were doing deep dive pieces of reporting and commentary, not on a weekly basis. They took time off and whatever, but on an episodic basis, they were they were doing good work. And you know, taking an Indian American comic and thinker out of the landscape at this particular moment is not the best optics and especially not one who was doing extraordinarily good, smart, funny work. And yeah, I, you know, what am I supposed to say? If, if Netflix is not going by that old ha 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 John Landgraf, uh, we look at three things. Do critics like it? Do audiences like it? Are the ratings good? Um, if Netflix is not in the business of caring about that, if Netflix is in the business of caring, are people watching it? Is it moving subscribers? And that is the only thing they're in the business of. That's what they're in the business of. And I can't tell them to change their business. Right. And we know that their <laughs> business model, the, the way it, you know, I, I would presume it works the same way for a talk show as it does unscripted. But the, the overall strategy is they look at a show, they weigh the cost of making the show. Will the cost that we're spending on another season of this show bring in new subscribers? Are people who are watching this show staying with it? And would that money be better allocated elsewhere to help bring in new subscribers? So if the answer is no across the board on those, then who knows? But at the same time, you know, to, to your point, we're at a different at, at a place in our culture where diverse voices like Hassan Minaj's are increasingly important to our culture. And and look, the, you know, the show earned an Emmy and a Peabody like those are huge awards in our, in our world. So how, you know, I, you know, yeah, I don't, I don't understand it either. So it, it has to be because either the show was expensive, which I would be surprised if it was, or people just fell off, which I, I just don't understand that. And again, we don't, we don't know. And we say this basically literally every Ooh, time we, let me say it, let me say it. Okay, go for it. Netflix doesn't release ratings. This is an accurate statement. And Thus, we, it is we don't know how many people are watching more than two minutes of any content. <laughs> and that one's true. The, the more than two minutes, even on the things that Netflix tells us, we don't know anything. So and is we that a trailer that you watched for two minutes? I don't know. <laughs> I could do this all day, Dan. I know you could. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it could absolutely turn out that this was a show that had no audience 
whatsoever. But it, it felt kind of in the conversation that they occasionally did segments that people talked about online. They always did segments that were of merit. There was no episode of that show that just was frivolous or casual or anything. They were tackling big stuff in smart ways, in substantive ways, and significantly more than the other programs that have been put in the comparable space that Netflix is struggling with. Go through some of those shows, Leslie. Yeah, they've had a, a couple swings and misses here. Chelsea Handler's show was canceled in 2017 after two seasons and two showrunners and two different formats. Michelle Wolf's show lasted one season and 10 episodes and was canceled only three months after it launched. And Joel McHale's show got one season and 19 episodes in six months. Uh, so that's not a great track record. And obviously, Hassan Minaj lasted far longer than those those shows did. Meanwhile, you've got something that's not not similar, but you still have David Letterman's My Next Guest Needs No Introduction, which Sources A remains in the works, though it, it did last air. I think it was October 2019. But and, yeah. and that's one where obviously David Letterman simply has more power than Hassan Minhaj has, and that is the reality of the situation. And one assumes that as long as David Letterman wants to periodically turn out episodes of his show, Netflix will let him continue to do that regardless of how many people are watching. Uh, yeah, but th some of those shows left bigger footprints than others. I am the only person who watched the Michelle Wolf show. I, I understand that. But the Joel McHale show came and went with such abruptness. Uh, and the Chelsea Handler thing, they tried because it was the first thing that they tried in that space. So they tried to do it several different ways and none of them stuck either. Yeah. And they've uh, experimented with, do we release episodes all as a binge? Does it, does it, is it a weekly? Do we do two at one, you know, two episodes in one week? Uh, you know, I don't think they, you know, it, it, it raises the question, Dan, of if this, do you think that this format can work on streaming? And the answer to that is that if you look at the number of reality shows that Netflix tried doing and that failed over the past couple of years, you would think, OK, that doesn't work. And then suddenly at the beginning of this year, Netflix had two or three genuine or reality success or four genuinely. Or yeah. And, and so all basically nothing works until something works. And for a long time, it looked as if reality was not a format that could work on Netflix. Then suddenly now it looks as if reality is a format that works perfectly fine on Netflix. So the, if the next talk show they have suddenly cuts through and becomes a cultural phenomenon on whatever level it becomes, then it absolutely works. And you go, OK, well, these just weren't the right things. Why was this the right thing? I don't know. It just feels to me like in the interim, keeping Patriot Act on would have been a, I don't want to say a kind thing, a charitable thing. It would have been a thing of value. It would have been a thing of substance. It would have been Netflix saying, we understand this isn't necessarily working, but we also know that it's working on a different level. That's a level that's of some value. We're going to keep this show around. We're going to keep trying to find something that does better. And then the minute we find something that's better, then we'll cancel it. And you'll know why we canceled it, because you'll be able to tell the difference. As it stands, it's just another failure in a long line of failures in this particular space for Netflix. And so they'll keep trying. And the <laughs> other thing that I wonder, too, is, I mean, they spread out these 39 episodes over, I think they called it, what, six seasons? Is that what they did? <laughs> so yes. We know that the way that Netflix deals are structured, that each passing season, the show gets more expensive. So there's a very real possibility 
and I don't know, I have no intel on this one here, but there is a, a possibility, I would imagine, that the cost did get expensive as the, each season progresses. The show, you know, they have to pay the talent considerably more to to make the show. So maybe this is part of the same strategy where very few shows make it to four seasons on Netflix, where it's the same thing. I mean, six seasons, no matter how they slice it, you could have a rising cost associated there. So who knows? And this would also go back to one of the things that we mentioned in the opening headlines with the cancellation of Drunk History on Comedy Central, where it's another one where on Twitter, everyone was saying, oh, that, that show can't be expensive. Well, the answer is it's probably more expensive than you think it is because... I mean, they have to do the reenactments and everything, but this isn't... I mean, yes, the Patriot Act may have gotten more expensive over the seasons, but and Drunk History definitely was an, not a cheap show to produce. They had to do all the reenactments, but that's part of a larger topic. And that takes us to some breaking news as we record this. Number four. Up next our, for our fourth segment, not a showrunner spotlight this week, but instead we're going to take a deeper dive into what's going on at Viacom CBS because Tosh.0 just got canceled. The 12th season will now be its last. Comedy Central just reversed course on its decision in January to renew the show for four more seasons and 80 more episodes. That is a stunning development to turn your back on a renewal like that with a talent who has been with that network for more than a decade. Ta uh, Daniel Tosh signed an overall deal as part of the big renewal in January. Of course, that deal was made by executives who are no longer with Comedy Central. Now you're seeing Comedy Central, as we, we talked earlier this month, shift to a new programming strategy where it's got three buckets of programming. Adult animation, right? Beavis and Butthead, Red and Stimpy, the Daria spinoff, Jody. Then you're going to have topical shows like The Daily Show. And the third bucket is going to be made for TV feature films. Guess what doesn't fit in there? Drunk History and Tosh.0. And the decision is really surprising. And as we said, when, when Southside and the other two were moved to HBO Max, why didn't these end up on CBS All Access? Well, for our listeners, as they know, CBS All Access is in the midst of a rebranding. It's going to change its name. It'll relaunch sometime next year with a, with a new name. And really the, the goal for Viacom CBS CEO Bob Backish is to expand that platform to be emblematic and include programming from across the, the entire company's portfolio. So CBS, Comedy Central, MTV, Showtime, et cetera. So it's a big change. So why are they not putting these comedies hit shows? Drunk History has, has earned an Emmy nomination every year, including this year. Why are they not putting these, including Southside and the other two, on CBS All Access? Well, that was the big question that I had a couple of weeks ago. I did some reporting on it and figured out that, well, Backish has his own strategy for All Access. And right now, Comedy is not a big part of it. That platform, as it, it current in its current form, I'm just rambling here, Dan. So feel free to interject anytime. <laughs> there, there would be nothing that I could say. <laughs> but the, the platform right now the, is a home for procedurals, right? What What do you think of when you think of CBS? Excuse me, I think I. Th but I think of Star Trek is what I think of. Well, yes, Star Trek and procedurals. It is not a destination for comedies. Definitely, so uh, Star Trek Lower Decks proved that. Ooh, ouch. Um, <laughs> at the same time, the other two and Southside were shipped off to HBO Max because guess what? They're a home for comedies, Big Bang Theory, Friends, etc. And if you think about it and take a step back, they also bought South Park in a deal that was the you know, library deal that was estimated to be worth $500 million. Well, that licensing deal has an expiration date. And the goal, as I understand it, for, for CBS All Access or whatever the new platform is going to be called, Paramount TV Plus or Paramount Plus, there's a rumor that that's the new title, which it's a bad one. But anyway, I digress. The idea is 
by the time the South Park deal ends, that show will come back to CBS All Access, and then it'll be joined by Beavis and Butthead, the new episodes, and hopefully the library, and Ren and Stimpy, the new episodes, and hopefully the library, and Daria, and the spinoff Jody with all the new episodes. And you basically have almost like a Disney Plus-like strategy of you're going to come in and sign up for The Mandalorian, and you're going to stay because we have the entire Star Wars libraries. You're going to come for these new Marvel spin-off shows, but you're going to stay because we have the entire MCU library. So that's what the, the future of CBS All Access is. And I think when you're talking about canceling, reversing course on a four-season 80-episode pickup, that's a huge deal. They're going to work together and try and find a new home for it, but that home's not going to be CBS All Access. Yeah, I, I thought that Tosh.0 was probably going to outlive me. So this actually is fairly massive news. Uh, and, you know, everyone should take it as that, even if your only exposure to Tosh.0 at this point is occasionally if you watch something later on Comedy Central, you catch the last two minutes of it by accident in Grimace, which is the only way I watch Tosh.0. Uh, the strategy on Comedy Central has not, to my mind, become any clearer um, the the three bucket strategy. I am still so perplexed by that animation bucket. Like, why would you make one of the buckets retreads of animation that was cool 25 years ago? Well, yeah, they're starting off with the retreads because they own the library and it's a way to monetize these other assets that have just been sitting there collecting dust at and. The idea is you're going to sell some of that stuff and try and expose it to a bigger audience. So I think maybe the Beavis and Butthead movie or the the original library is on all access, but it's not exclusive to all access. It's out there on a bazillion other platforms, as are, I think, Ren and Stimpy and maybe even Daria, because they want to expose these assets to a bigger audience and hopefully bring in some new viewers. So when they say, hey, guess what? We have new episodes Come watch them on Comedy Central and then you can catch them the next day or whatever that strategy, the rollout strategy will be on whatever the new All Access is called. And by the way, here's the entire vault. And by that point, they'll have South Park Pack and all of those assets at that point. I'm guessing this is in, in a couple of years. It'll all be exclusive content. It's vaguely perplexing, but as we keep saying pretty much constantly, this is a an ever-shifting landscape. And so nothing is set in stone and the brand that you thought was recognizable two months ago is going to be something completely different two months from now. So just strap in and enjoy the ride or something to that effect. Yeah, it's a very interesting strategy. And, and you know, I heard that the new Beavis and Butthead is probably going to be hopefully on the air in the third quarter 2021. And, you know, look, I, we've said for a long time that adult animated shows are a cash cow in success. Rick and Morty has got to be a billion dollar franchise by now. Family Guy is worth billions. The Simpsons is worth billions. Bob's Burgers likely billions. And in success, you've got some of the most iconic shows in that landscape, Beavis and Butthead and Ren and Stimpy and, and, and even Daria with the offshoot that are going to monetize the value of those. And hopefully maybe, I don't know if they'll be, be relevant, but when you're going to be able to put them together with a library that includes South Park first runs, like South Park is a huge hit for Comedy Central and they never built on on it. Like, what, what's the other animated show that they pair with it? How have they used that to kind of launch other things or or build out that audience? They haven't. People come for South Park and then they go or they watch it on ComedyCentral.com or whatever platform or on HBO Max or they watched it on Hulu where it was one of their top performing shows. 
yeah, it's it's a smart strategy to lean into adult animation. And we don't know for sure that it's all going to be reboots and retreads. So excuse also, me. Do you want to watch you, Beavis and Butthead as parents? I'm curious. But when you talk about not building off of the success of South Park, clearly you're forgetting about the storied series run of uh, Trey Parker and Matt Stone's that my that's my Bush from uh, 2001. I mean, that was definitely building off of the success of South Park. So right. But I, I also wouldn't be be surprised to see them try and turn South Park in, into an even bigger franchise. We know that uh, they've had what, at least one movie. I can't I've lost track. They did indeed an Oscar nominated or possibly winning movie. But it was existed. it only one movie or two? But like, there was only one movie. Imagine doing another South Park movie on Comedy Central or imagine a South Park spinoff. Like I, I wouldn't be at all surprised to see that. So and I have no intel uh, on this, I should note. But you know, that's the Comedy Central strategy. When they picked up Beavis and Butthead, the plan was, I think, as I recall, two seasons and spinoffs. Jody is already a spinoff of Daria. You're building out franchises. And in this landscape where it's impossible to cut through with anything original, I mean, it's not impossible. I mean, it can be done. Lovecraft is, is a great example. But you need you need franchises. Look at what The Walking Dead has become. This is very much the opposite of striking while the iron is hot. This is striking while the iron is mighty, mighty chilly. But then again, so is the new walk. So is the new Walking Dead spinoff. It's it's great. Let's go. Let's milk one more out of it while we still have the time. <sighs> yeah, I mean, it, it's an interesting strategy. And I, I will be curious to see if there are originals. I mean, Comedy Central hired a really talented exec uh, by the name of Grant Gish, who comes by way of Fox via Marvel to run adult animation. He's a very talented executive. He, he built out an entire plan for Hulu and Marvel to be, it was like a four show animated franchise with two little one-off movies as part of it. It was basically emulating the Netflix strategy, but with animated comedies built out of the Marvel world, didn't come together. Part of it fell apart because, you know, well, the Marvel TV unit fell apart with Jeff Loeb, as we've talked about. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's a good exec. He was, he worked on Bob's Burgers for a long time, family guy. I'm very curious to see if they're able to to do a, a new animated show. And as we've seen the entire landscape, that's a business that everyone is going into, not just because in success, it's a cash cow, but it's also something where you can continue to produce it during a pandemic. Right. And it's, they're not super expensive to make, especially if you own them. Fox bought Bento Box, which is the animation company behind Bob's Burgers. And they're investing a ton of money in new animated shows because they realize at some point, Family Guy and The Simpsons aren't going to air on Fox. Well, as we've said with everything in this week's podcast, stay tuned. Things are developing. Yeah, there is so much change going on, man. Anyway, one thing that isn't changing, Dan, is your insightful reviews. And that's what we call the transition. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics Corner. This week's new arrivals include adult animated comedy Hoops, the fifth season of Lucifer, and the second and final season of Trinkets, all on Netflix. Freeform launches its quarantine miniseries, Love in the Time of Corona. The Vow debuts on HBO. Love Island returns on CBS. And The Have and The Have Nots makes its return on OWN. Dan, what you got? Well, remember how last week I told everyone it was a great and big week for exciting new programming um, well, that that is still true. And people should still check out Ted Lasso and Lovecraft. People should still check out Ted Lasso, Lovecraft Country and also Teenage Bounty Hunters. So, yeah, uh, as for this week's stuff, much, much less good. Um, 
Yeah, let's start with Hoops, which features uh, Jake Johnson from New Girl fame as a foul-mouthed high school basketball coach in animated form. It's not very good. The first three or four episodes are, in fact, really, really unpleasant. There, there are a lot of, ooh, we can swear because we're on Netflix, but almost no actual jokes, which is too bad. Uh, I will insist that the show does get better around the fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth episodes. Uh, they actually find a little bit of humanity to some of the characters, and it becomes a little bit funny here and there. Uh, but I don't know who has the time to sit through five hours of unpleasant swearing animation just to get to OK by episode five or six. That's that's not really a good investment of anybody's time. Um, on the other hand, I still think it's probably a better investment of your time than love in the time of Corona, which is the strangest of things. It's it's early pandemic nostalgia. I, I don't even know what to make of it. It's uh it is fascinating on a production level. It is absolutely interesting to look at as how you make a show in quarantine. So there are interesting aspects like people's significant others in the show are played by their significant others in real life. It's a little bit like the soap opera plan. So if you've wanted to watch Leslie Odom Jr. and wife Nicolette Robinson act together, this is your opportunity. And that is, I would say, the only reason to watch the show because Leslie Odom is Dodum Jr. is both very good and it's great to see someone giving him a romantic lead. So that's a nice thing. Uh, but it is so full of cliches and so full of on the nose historicizing. And just I don't understand why anyone would want to live through this again, like whole long plot lines about people needing to wear masks and people wondering about if they can get tests and all of the things basically that life was in March. I, I don't know why anyone would want to experience this. It is not funny. It's not romantic and it's really unpleasant. Um, and also a lot of the technological things in shooting makes it really fairly ugly and claustrophobic in places too. It's, it's really, it's not good. Uh, the vow this weekend is a nine-part HBO documentary series about the Nexium sex cult, best known to most people as that sex cult involving Allison Mack from Smallville, uh, which is enticing and it is interesting at places. It's it's a little bit, you know, cult drama 101 in terms of breaking down what the ideology is, what their methodology was, how people got brainwashed into believing it, etc., it definitely did not need to be nine hours long. I've, I've seen six episodes and I, I've got all I need. I, I really do not need any more. Um, yeah, I think they could have done this one in four. I would even say that with some economy, they probably could have done it in a two hour feature. But it's interesting. Uh, and yeah, so and then there's Love Island returning to CBS and we don't have uh, screeners and it's going to be Love Island. So whatever it is, it's going to be in Las Vegas for some reason. And that's going to be strange. So I am actually looking forward to checking that out in a trashy, trashy, trashy way. But yeah, th those are my recommendations for this week. Uh, really, really enthusiastic. Right, Leslie? Oh, yeah, dude, I'm riveted. <laughs> I, I, I don't know what to tell you. Some weeks, some weeks the TV gods giveth and this week they perhaps taketh away. Uh, no, the, the vow is really not bad. It's uh, there's just a lot of it. And, and I did not need nine hours of it. Uh, but other people 
might. It is definitely it is definitely not bad. And of the things premiering this week that I've seen, uh, the final season of Trinkets is is currently embargoed. Uh, but I know you were a fan of the first. Um, yeah, the vow is probably the best of things. And of course, for Lucifer fans, the return of Lucifer is is great. I just happen not to be. But, you know, all praise to those who are. Yeah. And I will add, you know, I, I love uh, Trinkets. It was a, a super cute little show that I just happened to stumble on from Awesomeness TV, uh, a low budget uh, show with with a lesbian lead character. And it's just it's really cute. And I already watched all of, of the second and final season, which is just a weird sentence to say second and final season. But hey, 2020. <laughs> I was going to um, say, is, is it any weirder than uh, than um saying in a baseball game in extra innings, a leadoff two run home run, which has happened a couple times in extra innings this season, a leadoff two run home run. So basically do not the- get me started on the runner <laughs> at second, Dan, how much time do you have? Um, but I, you know, look, I, I understand I'm not a critic and I keep saying that, but you know, so take this for what you're worth. If you watch season one of trinkets and you liked it, the season two does stick the landing. So excellent. Well, for more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to THR's Now See This newsletter. That feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. Until then, be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little reviewy thing. It helps spread the word of mouth. We're always happy to come chat with you on Twitter, so come say hi to us. Uh, we got a number of very good questions for a mailbag segment this week. Maybe it'll come along next week. Uh, blame Daniel Tosh for eliminating this week's mailbag segment. No, dude. Blame Comedy Central for eliminating this week's mail. mail I prefer to blame Daniel Tosh for many things. Uh, And (laughs) yeah, just saying. But anyway, if you have questions for future mailbag segments, you can always reach us at TV's Top 5 at THR.com. That's TV's Top 5, the number 5 at THR.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad, to learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai.